I think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. It is the end of February and that means this month in birding. But before I send you off to that conversation, a little ABA housekeeping. You might know that we offer an extensive travel program to locations both within the ABA area and beyond. We have a full slate in 2024, including Newfoundland, Borneo, Dominican Republic, and others. But we also have a couple more immediate openings for interested birders, and we're just putting the word out if you want to join us later this spring. We'll be in Belize at the end of March. Belize is a fantastic destination for birders who are perhaps first-time visitors to the Neotropics. Lots of amazing birds, but not so overwhelming. Also, you'll probably see a lot of Neotropic migrants making their way north in March. That's always a lot of fun. And in early April, we'll be in Hawaii, searching for some of those critically endangered Hawaiian forest birds on the islands of Oahu, Kauai, and the Big Island, and supporting conservation efforts there through Pacific Rim Conservation and the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge as well. So just putting that in your ear, maybe I can convince you to join us in the near term, but you can get all the information about those trips and all the other ones we have for 2024 at aba.org travel. So without any further ado, let's get on to the show itself. Jenny Duberstein, Gabriel Foley, and Nicole Jackson join us to talk eBird streaks, condors, landfills, smart falcons, and more, all after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of February 2024. For the second consecutive week, we start with a Eurasian migratory thrush in the ABA area, a red wing the third of the year so far in North America was discovered this week in St. John's, Newfoundland. The most notable thing about this individual is that it appears to be the nominate subspecies, which breeds in mainland Eurasia rather than the Icelandic breeding Coburni subspecies, which represents most of the records of Red Wing, at least in the eastern part of the ABA area. It also suggests that this is a different bird than the one found on nearby Saint-Pierre and Mequillon the week before. Other than that, it has been a slow period for ABA rarities, as February typically is, provided, of course, you aren't in South Texas, where all of the recent rarities, save the mottled owl and the crane hawk, are still present. They just added a stunning adult male blue bunting in Cameron County to the mix, though there have been a small handful of female-type birds in the region along with everything else. When it rains, I guess it truly pours. That's what I have for you this week. For the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all of the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. It's not often that we have an extra week in February, but this month's This Month in Birding panel falls on Leap Day, the first time we've ever had an episode on the 29th of February, which is probably not all that interesting to anyone 
aside from myself. Anyway, I'm excited to welcome a panel that is as unique as this day to talk about some bird and birding news. Let's introduce them now. First up, our friend from Arizona, a conservationist and a young birder mentor with the ABA and a real deal bird scientist. So you can take everything she says right to the bank. It's Jenny Duverstein. Hi, Jenny. <laughs> Hello, Mercy. That's a lot to live up to. Nice Always. To yeah. I know you can handle it. That's why I <laughs> gave it to you. Um, he is the coordinator for the Maryland DC Bird Atlas, one of the founders of Bird Names for Birds, too. Welcome back to Gabriel Foley. Thank you so much, Nate. It's good to see you. And she is an Ohio naturalist, one of the leaders of Black Birders Week, which is coming up this spring, May 26th to June 1st. Put it on your calendars. It's our friend, Nicole Jackson. Hello, Nicole. Hi, Nate. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have all of you here. It is great to see all three of you today. Happy Leap Day. <laughs> yeah right I, I don't know if that's actually a thing but uh maybe maybe it is anybody who watches 30 rock will know there you go it i knew it came from thing. somewhere <laughs> uh let's start the conversation off with a, an extremely niche burning concern imagine if you will you are a birder with an incredible ebird daily consecutive checklist streak. I know a lot of birders out there are very interested in maintaining their eBird consecutive streak, but imagine then also that you're a birder that is traveling west over the Pacific Ocean and crossing the international dateline such that you lose an entire day due to the vagaries of timekeeping on this sphere that we live on, uh, which could potentially wreck your very long and very hard-earned daily streak. How do you deal with that? Is this something that matters? Do you just toss it off? Do you just let it go? Or do you come up with a solution for this? I've seen this hypothetical thrown around, uh, perhaps adding like a, a eBird hotspot on the international dateline that allows people to enter a dummy checklist. I am of two minds about this. I'm curious to hear where you come down on it. What would you do if your consecutive eBird streak was uh, potentially under threat simply because you crossed the international dateline? As somebody who uh, gets hives at the thought of a streak of <laughs> eBird checklist, I'm probably the wrong person to ask. That said, I recognize that and know lots of people that, that love their eBird streak. I had a friend who was... I think on his way to Japan. And yeah, so had a real flight. world application there. Yes, leaving San Francisco close to midnight, actually. Mm -hmm. And he was texting me, you know, kind of depressed because he had done the math and he's like, oh no, my eBird checklist is going to, yeah. my streak is going to go away. And so I thought about it and the flight kept getting delayed until it took <laughs> oh, off. Oh like, man, lucky. The only time you're looking forward to a flight delay. I know, it was, <laughs> it got delayed really close to midnight, but it was still before midnight. And I was like, okay, here's what you're going to do. Yeah. You're going to get in the plane. The plane's going to take off. And within five minutes, you're going to look out the window and enter a zero <laughs> observation <laughs> checklist and your streak <laughs> will be alive. And it he was so happy. It was like yeah. the, the silliest, most straightforward thing, but it made him happy. So I sympathize with people and I have no strong feelings about a solution. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I, I'm definitely one of the people who likes their eBird checklist right. streak. Um, going strong at 
2,264 days. That's impressive. How many years is that? That's I'm doing the math. Did the math not that long ago, actually. At least five. I think it's around five years. Yeah. Yeah. Long enough. Long Um, enough that it would hurt if you lost it. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, And uh, yeah, like, I mean, I'm I'm in no danger of reaching the international dateline anytime soon. That's not going to happen. But there's there's certainly some days where uh, you know you're for whatever reason, you're just, you're not hurting, you're, you're working or whatever. And all of a sudden it's like, it's dark outside. I didn't submit my (laughs) checklist. No. (laughs) And you got to run outside and do like some kind of crappy nocturnal checklist. (laughs) Twilight calling tit mouse or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's definitely silly. Um, But, you know, I, I think the fact that, like it's a number that eBird has put on their website. Like the fact that it exists makes you makes want you to chase it if you yeah. have those proclivities. Yeah. Some people do not. Some people do. And yeah. hey, if it makes you happy, go for it. Nicole, would you look askance at someone whose eBird consecutive day streak was juiced by a dummy checklist on the international dateline? Or would you just say, all right, I get it. <laughs> i really i We're mean the i would, I would agree the with jenny like i i don't i don't it's just i don't know it's not it's not something i would necessarily think about because i don't actually keep my own i don't checklist. have a checklist streak either it was it was so news to me that people it, would take it neither here nor there um i feel like but i can i, I guess i can understand the it being an anxiety inducing <laughs> Um, situation for you know very type a um <laughs> hey, birding attracts uh, those kind of people yeah so it's like it totally makes sense and i feel like i have my moments in regards to that when you know i'm out birding and i see a really cool bird i know it's a cool bird and i've forgotten my binoculars and i don't have oh, yeah. a fellow birder with me to confirm yeah um so I yeah I I can definitely see um understand the the feeling of angst behind it. I feel like if you are that person like you were saying Gabriel that's just like realizing like oh I didn't get a chance you know I've run out of time and then you're rushing <laughs> to account for that. Yeah. Is it worth it? I don't know. I feel like are you proud of it <laughs> when it's done? I think you're proud you know? of the number so, on the streak. Yeah. Of like this really caused me stress, but like I, I got it in. So I don't. Yeah. <laughs> do do any of you use Duolingo? I've no. used it in the past. Yeah. I, I use it and the streak causes me intense stress. <laughs> the the same streak thing? seems to be like Duolingo's like main thing to get you to like come back like oh my goodness you're gonna lose your streak I'm like i care about my ebird streak i do not care about my duolingo streak <laughs> <laughs> quiet down there little owl there, there there is a uh there is an aspect of human psychology that they're playing to and ebird yeah. is to some extent as well so ebird's getting something out of it they're getting mm-hmm. serious birders probably uh entering these checklists and even you know zero checklists have some yeah. value even if they're not as valuable as someone going out birding every day like there's there's something there so i guess what i'm saying is we should blame ebird for playing our psyches so adeptly why are you doing this to us why are you making us so anxious cornell i i think 
in terms of a solution to this, it's when you fly across the international dateline, how would you be aware of the instant that you fly across it to be able to enter a checklist? I feel like this is sort of the thing like in baseball with the home run record where there's like an asterisk for when they <laughs> added more games to the schedule. Yeah. There needs to be some kind of box you can tick. Like I literally yeah. missed a day. Yeah, because like, day of just the curvature exist. of the earth. Exactly. <laughs> like, the weirdness in which the arbitrariness with which we determine time. It's not my fault. I think like you're that, still entering something in a 24-hour period. Yeah, sorry. I, didn't I think the streaks should continue, even though if you looked at the list of dates and lists, there would be a gap. There should be mm -hmm. a way with an eBird for somebody to tick a box that said, I was crossing the international dateline and literally did not have this day. Yeah, yeah. You know, that actually makes me wonder. eBird presumably introduced this to be like an incentive for mm -hmm. birders to... to uh, submit eBird checklist more regularly. But if it also has the incentive to produce, I won't call it bad behavior, but not the best eBird checklist practices, does eBird actually mildly regret introducing <laughs> this? And they can't go back now, right? Yeah. Like if they take away somebody's 2000 day checklist streak, they're going to be upset. Yeah, you're kind of stuck with it, but I wonder if they if they could go back in time if they'd make the same decision. Yeah, or if it's a programming concern, if it's a difficulty to do that. The international dateline causes so many problems. <laughs> Who knew? Well, you can take our advice, uh, Ebert, if you want to add that check mark. I think that's probably the, an elegant solution that allows people to keep their checklist, even if they um, are going westward across the Pacific. Um, I, I can't imagine this is a concern that eBird really thought about when they in, instituted the, the checklist streak, but I'm, I'm sure it was an issue that birders recognized almost immediately. <laughs> well, do, do any of you um, do any of you keep date lists, the number of birds that you've seen on a particular day of the year, like across years? So like no, I've seen, so, yeah, I know today that like, would be a really excellent day to go. Yeah, you got to like get out and you got to <laughs> get your February 29th birds today. Like you yeah. don't have that chance for another four years, you know? That's right. It's like people <laughs> who have a birthday on February 29th and like, they're getting their driver's license when technically they're four years old. <laughs> but this is what it's fascinating. This, you mentioned Duolingo, the um, Garmin and Strava, the, the yeah. apps for yeah. tracking physical activity have like special badges you can earn. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like you get one if you do something on New Year's Eve or they have yeah. one for, you know, I'm sure there's one, you can record one activity on February 29th and just that sort of gamification of yeah. insert life activity here. Yeah. But it's um, such it's a short-lived instant gratification experience. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yay. Yeah. Oh, now I have to wait a whole, you know, four years <laughs> to have that yay so again. <laughs> easily manipulated. It's <laughs> not even funny. <laughs> Ooh, I get a graphic to put on my. <laughs> That's right. I know, like, Untapped does it with beers that you've drunk too, and which, which maybe you do some less than healthy activities as well. At least, Evert, you're getting out and seeing birds. <laughs> I am very interested um, in the article that came out about um, Andean condors thinking about trash and landfills um, specifically. So this was um, recorded through or sorry, published through the Journal of Raptor Research and um, 
as part of their research, they're studying these condors and the largest landfill in Chile. This is really interesting information because you're kind of it kind of allows you to look at the importance of these huge, massive, like gorgeous, stunning birds, but also the lay of the land as far as um, they gather, eat food, but also how that connects to humans and what they do with the use of landfills or even cattle. Having this understanding of the connection between landfills being a source of uh, information and study and rotting flesh, (laughs) if anybody's interested in that. And the study itself has been a 17-year-long study, so it's been going on for a while. And This is in central Chile, and understanding that the condors are coming to these specific landfill stations to find food and scavenge, there's been some elements of human livestock practices, thinking about poisoning of uh, livestock. And I don't think people necessarily think about landfills as being a place of, of connection and education, especially with mm-hmm. birding. But I feel like, I don't know, landfills are those, those places where you just, I don't, I feel like it's an opportunity to learn about um, ecology, but also food systems um, and birds. So like the, the article title says, one person's trash is another bird's treasure. So <laughs> they realized during the study that more juveniles and females Uh, fed at the landfill than Mm. adult males, um, likely because successful scavenging is more difficult for young birds and subordinate individuals. And then landfills offer easier pickings for those who might be bullied off of choice carcasses by adult males elsewhere. So um, it's interesting to kind of think about Yes, hierarchy of the birds and like how mm-hmm. they're accessing the food and who has more risk of being harmed and even thinking about diseases, poisoning, all of those factors. So, yeah, yeah it's a pretty interesting article. There's a lot going on uh, in that yeah. article for sure that you, you pointed out, but I can't get over the dichotomy of this you know, absolutely epic, incredible, iconic bird of the yes. Andean wilderness at a landfill. like i've seen birds at landfills i've gone birding at landfills it's not uncommon but an andean condor at a landfill is such a (laughs) strange visual (laughs) well they are they are considered our our cleanup crew so i think having that um juxtaposition visually would definitely kind of make you tilt your head (laughs) like (laughs) Like i've seen black vultures turkey vultures at landfills yeah condor yeah, four times bigger than those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think part of it, part of that is like the a U.S. centric perspective where we're so used to mm, thinking of condors enough. are like on the brink of extinction, and you're yeah. so lucky yeah. if you happen to run into one. And it's not to say that Andean condors are common or like something you see, but relative to relative. say California yep. condors, they're they're yeah more part of the landscape. Yeah. And big birds need to eat too, I guess. <laughs> wherever, the, wherever the food is. I mean, that that's why the vultures and gulls and whatnot are always hanging out at landfills too. That's why birds go there to to count gulls or to look for rare gulls or whatever. It's because the food is there and the birds are going to find it. And, um, you know, even use it as in the case of a lot of these condors and in a way that is beneficial to the, the larger populations and for the most part. I wonder how the the interactions work between 
condors, which are obviously like gigantic birds, mm-hmm. and then the the black vultures, which you know rely more on their numbers to kind of outcompete uh, mm-hmm. things that are closer to their size, like turkey vultures. Um, but I wonder, like, is, is there a number of black vultures that can drive off a, a condor from a particular place? Or is a condor just doesn't really matter? How many black yeah. vultures could fight an Indian <laughs> condor is what you're... <laughs> so I have a thought on this as well, somebody who has studied or been there adjacent... You go. Why, why is it we always talk about vultures when you are I on the show? I don't know. Jenny? It's true. <laughs> And I'm going to talk about a, yeah, anyway, we're going to get back to that later also. Uh, Black vultures for, uh, you know, their relative smaller size compared to condors, they're super confident, let's say. Um, And when we're trapping turkey vultures, if that's the the main species we're going after and a black vulture comes in, we're like, oh, God, now we're never going to get the, because the turkey vultures are like, oh, no, please. Get out of my way. And the black vultures are just quite dominant. So even though they're smaller huh. than a condor, it wouldn't shock me to have a black vulture, like elbow a condor out of the way, <laughs> so to speak. Huh. That's based on, you know, my admittedly mostly anecdotal <laughs> experience. Apparently, turkey vultures, uh, their body weight to wing ratio is higher so basically they can they can fly earlier in the morning more easily yeah. more wing vultures. more wing less body. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's why turkey vultures are so wobbly when they fly yeah exactly yeah because so, of that. so they'll leave first thing in the morning and they have better sense of smell than black vultures as well they'll go out and they'll basically like they'll be foraging black vultures will chill for a little bit, and then they'll go up higher. They'll watch where the turkey vultures are going. Mm. Yeah, Turkey vultures will go find food, and then the black vultures will all come, drive off the turkey vulture, and take what they've they found. Totally fascinating. Where I live, where we have about equal numbers of uh, black vultures and turkey vultures, I also find that the turkey vultures go after smaller food than the black vulture. So if there's like a roadkill deer on the side of the road, that, that sucker is going to be covered in black vultures. But the tur- there won't be many turkey vultures with it because obviously they get chased mm-hmm. off. Um, and they will go after like the possum or the raccoon or the, or the groundhog or whatever. Like they're not going to, they're going to go after stuff that maybe intentionally to not put them in the, you know, in conflict with black vultures who are like a motorcycle gang of uh, birds. Is it because they want to have time to eat the carcass? Yeah, they want to take their time. They're chill. They want to they enjoy Don't rush it. my meal. Yeah. Please, yeah. Yeah, but it's curious, like you throw in another giant bird into this uh, this hierarchy mm-hmm. here. Like, how does it work in, in South America? Do the, the, do the, can the Indian condors like fight off some? Certainly they're probably going to chase off turkey vultures, but I don't know. A lot of black vultures are yeah. probably in the same places. Yeah. Interesting. We need someone to study that. Jenny? Can you please? Yeah, right. I'll get right on that. <laughs> <laughs> I was um, corresponding via email with Nate in preparation for this episode, and I just want to take a moment and express my gratitude for oh. being invited to participate in these This Month in Birding podcasts on a regular basis, because it gives me, in addition to the opportunity to just sort of share ideas with a really cool group of people 
it gives me the chance to read things that I probably never would have read in my regular life about topics that, you know, maybe aren't directly related to my work. And I I, uniformly, I'm like, wow, (laughs) that is fascinating. And how interesting that somebody's studying this. So I read two papers and I thought I was going to talk about one. And then at the last minute, Nate suggested this other one. And I was like, well, I'll just take a quick look at it. (laughs) <laughs> so I'm going to talk about. I didn't suggest it. I just, I just throw stuff up there that I think people might like. And, and frankly, I will say, uh, for for thanking people uh, right now, I want to uh, give a thanks to Michelle Kineholtz, who uh, has this list of people that she just sends out, like all the recent bird studies, all the recent papers that have come out to a bunch of people. And somehow I managed to get on this list and I draw a lot of topics from that. So we'll say it's not me <laughs> just sitting at my computer digging through journals to try and find bird stuff. Uh, Michelle Kineholtz sends a lot of stuff uh, out to a group of people. I don't know. I'm BCC'd in it. I don't even know who's in it, but um, there's, there's it's a lot of cool stuff. That's so. cool. Yeah. I just go to Google Scholar and say, show me stuff published in 2024. <laughs> and then I look through the list. And I'm like, oh, that looks cool. Maybe that's what she does. I don't know. She does a good job. So the paper I'm going to talk to you about today, um, some researchers looked, it's called Innovative Problem Solving by Wild Falcons. And they looked at the capacity of striated caracaras, also called one of my favorite nicknames, yeah, great Johnny name. Rook. <laughs> Johnny Rook. <laughs> Um, looked at their capacity to to problem solve and basically gave them a puzzle, a very complicated sort of stepwise puzzle, um, and studied how long it took them to solve the different parts um, and get to the end of the puzzle. And in a nutshell, they found out, and I just want to start by saying I often struggle with these sort of anthropomorphic comparisons of intelligence in of mm-hmm. non-human species based on human measures of intelligence. I struggle with human measures of intelligence. <laughs> so <laughs> let's just put all that out there. Um, but nonetheless, what they found is that these these Johnny Rooks were super adept at problem solving and figuring out these puzzles. And the the more they were exposed to the puzzles, the faster they learned. And they especially liked the things that had like a something to pull or something to twist, like that. And they would go back even after they had received the award, the reward from that part of the puzzle. Like they there was still like a playfulness. They'd go back mm-hmm. and and play with those things. And for anybody that knows more about bird intelligence studies, they they relate them related the intelligence of the striated caracara to Goffin's cockatoos um, saying they were had similar levels of intelligence that the caracaras solved more complex puzzles than the cockatoos and they solved them a little bit faster than the cockatoos also. So maybe they're a little Mm, bit smarter. Take that. Take that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It was fascinating. One thing that I thought was really interesting. They, they looked at when, when the, um, Caracaras started, you know, they're presented with the puzzle. Like they'd come rushing in, like, ooh, what's this? What's this cool thing? Hmm. Um, and initially they would use both their beak and their feet to kind of test it out. But as they gained more confidence, they would use their beak more than their feet, which I just started thinking about that. Like maybe if you were unsure of something, you'd want to keep your head farther away from it until you figure out it's not going to hurt you. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was, it was super interesting. And this is, I'm going to tie this back to vultures. 
Um, <laughs> a friend and colleague, um, Dr. Keith Bildstein, who for many, many years studied vultures and other uh, birds of prey at Hawk Mountain Sanctuary. And that's the project, the vulture project in Arizona that I was involved with. He, for many years, has conducted research on Johnny Rooks in the Falklands. And he told me a great Small story world. once. He had just gotten a, a new um, four by four vehicle and was going out to survey some of his banded birds. And it was like a several mile hike. You know, you go as far as the vehicle will take you. And he left it there and he's like, I'm going to keep the key with me because if I leave it here, somebody's going to mess with it. Not somebody, something, some animal. <laughs> he could see the Johnny Rooks, the unbanded ones <laughs> circling. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to keep the key. Brand new shiny vehicle. He hikes, whatever, three miles to his study site where he has the banded Johnny Rooks for hours, does his field work, makes it observing them and then hikes back. And he can see there's three or four birds on the the machine and he gets closer and closer and he can see they've just torn it to shreds. <laughs> like they've <laughs> ripped the, the, the stuffing out of the seat, like wires are pulled out and he's like, ha well, I still have my key. <laughs> and he goes to put the key and turns it and nothing, nothing happens. <laughs> like nuts. Um, and it turned out it was sort of like a treadmill where there's like an emergency stop cord and they had pulled uh -huh. that. <laughs> But he talks about it. he has an essay that he wrote about this. And I'm sorry, I'm taking so long to talk about this. But he talks about how the the four by four had been I forget what his word was, but like a, a treadmill for their neck, <laughs> like that wow. they use their heads a lot in doing things hmm. which matched up with yeah. what the researchers found hmm. um, about the problem solving. These stories about uh, Johnny Rooks, about strided car cars, remind me a lot of the stories that you hear from New Zealand about the Kias, the the parrots that live there that are kind of famous for uh, being exceptionally curious, yeah, and destroying <laughs> automobiles like regularly. And and the funny thing is, is like, I mean, they're two. I mean, I, I guess falcons and parrots are more related than some other pairs of birds, but still pretty distantly mm -hmm. shared a common ancestor. But um, it's it's a fascinating example of you know, convergent evolution that these two different groups of birds, which look actually kind of similar, they're both kind of straggly gray, green, kind of model-y all over, both found on islands, although stridocar cars are found on the mainland a little bit too, but do similar stuff. They're curious in very similar ways. And I just, I just, I wonder if that's indicative of, you know, the potential cognitive abilities of falcons in general, or is it kind of a unique thing? Because we know that parrots are when we talk about bird intelligence, parrots are like right up there with corvids as being, you know, tops. Falcons have never really been considered to be smart, but obviously this is an, maybe, is this an exception? Is this a role? I guess I have no idea. It's it's interesting that that I, you know, it's these birds seem so behaviorally similar despite being not related to each other right. at all. And what are the, like, I think about convergent evolution or things like that. Like, are there yeah. things in their, in their day-to-day -day world that. Yeah, yeah. they're similar. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. maybe that's part of the intelligence, too, is they're just showing us stuff that they think we want to see. <laughs> oh, yeah. Maybe they know what they're doing. Let's take it another step. <laughs> <I like> it. <laughs> they know exactly what they're doing. <laughs>
when people characterize the intelligence of falcons kind of more generally, I think they kind of get a dumb jock reputation. Like they're these huge physically imposing uh, birds that do incredible physical feats, but maybe aren't the smartest birds out there. But, you know, there are other, there are some falcons that do weird stuff like the Eleanor's falcon in the Mediterranean that captures songbirds and then maim them and shove them in cracks so they can eat them later, which is gory and vicious, but also kind of amazing. And, and uh, but, uh, wow, I had not heard that one. You know, I would totally love to see that horror film. Wow, (laughs) it it is a—it's totally a horror film, a bird horror film. But yeah, they—they catch these migrants that pass over the Mediterranean and they capture them and they like break their wings and then they shove them in like these cracks and boulders so they can come back to them and eat them. And the Um, the injuries that they inflict are they consistent across? I believe so. I believe so. So you're asking questions. I don't want to get like ahead of my skis here, but I vaguely remember you know hearing that they are like they'll they'll they go after their wings obviously to prevent these birds from wow. flying so yeah wow that's yeah, yeah. that's fascinating. falcons <laughs> falcons multitudes they contain multitudes the, the researchers in this paper did look at um some other caracara species i think shimango caracara mm-hmm. was one of the ones um and while they weren't as quote unquote smart as the striated caracara that they they did you know, they were able to problem solve and they showed an increased ability to problem solve with longer exposure to the puzzle. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Huh. So makes you wonder about just the cognitive abilities of birds just in general. Anyone gets better with practice and how many people are doing running these sort of experiences, experiments with lots of different kinds of birds. I don't know, just just crows and parrots as far as I know. So I get to share some good news, you know. Being interested in nature and wildlife, we're also interested in conservation, and conservation can be pretty, uh, doesn't always make you happy. (laughs) 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 But every once in a while, you get to hear something pretty fun. Uh, So there were a group of researchers uh, that were in the Albertine Rift in on the eastern side of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. They were from the Centre de Recherche en Sciences Naturelles Institution and the University of Texas at El Paso. And basically, uh, they were there to document biodiversity um, on a six-week trip. Uh, They were on foot. They covered 75 miles across the Atambwe Massif. and they were just surveying birds, amphibians, and reptiles. And um, as part of this, they um, refound the yellow-crested helmet shrike, which hasn't been seen, or at least it hasn't been um, reported for almost 20 years, mm-hmm. um, largely just due to the inaccessibility of the region, um, especially because of all of the armed conflict that's, that's going on over there. This is, you know, in the region of the Varanga National Park, um, which is famous, of course, for the mountain gorillas. But yeah, they they found eighteen birds at three at three sites. And it wasn't clear if they found eighteen birds at each site or you know a total of eighteen over the three. But these helmet shrikes, they like to move around in groups, and they found them in the cloud forest on on the slope. Now, one of the one of the interesting things as I was reading, you know, about the history of these helmet shrikes, um, they're a beautiful bird. They're like starling size. It's a cool. Oh, it's so bird. cool. They're they're all black with like this bright yellow, and it really does look like a helmet. 
Mm. When this bird was first, you know, documented for science, it was uh, found in 1933 at about 4,400 meters in altitude, uh, mummified. And that was the, the type specimen. But normally, these birds are found between 1120 and 2,500 meters. So uh, scientists think that they might migrate altitudinally, but it's really, really interesting that this species, which has a, an extremely small distribution, they're not common within that distribution, um, so fairly just rare bird, was not documented within like the habitat that you would expect to find it in. It was documented, you know, well outside of its of its range. So they estimate that there are between twenty five hundred and ten thousand individuals. That's from BirdLife International, uh, and that's decreasing. And of course, the threats to these birds are the ones that you would expect, centered around around habitat loss. But super exciting to hear that. 18 birds over the course of a few weeks that seems that seems very promising for a for a locally rare bird. Uh, and I just want to reiterate that this bird is uh stunning. It is a really really cool looking bird. Um Albertine Rift area, folks are are not aware of it is like one of the areas of highest endemism in Africa. It's like where DR Congo and Uganda and Rwanda all kind of meet each other in the Lakes District and there's you know, a ton of really cool endemic uh, birds, mountain gorilla being not a bird, but <laughs> one of the endemics there. But there's a lot of cool birds there, like, you know, Grower's Broadbill and um, is a Rimanzori Taraco. Like there's a, there's a bunch of cool stuff that you can see um, on both in Uganda and Rwanda and perhaps in DR Congo as well, which would be fantastic if that were, um, if people were able to get over there. And, and I mean, that area is protected. It's a huge national park. And so, you know, the, there's obviously an interest in, in protecting that area. Um, but so cool. Such a great bird. Such a cool part of the world. Yeah. Love, love, a, love a rediscovery story. This, <laughs> this area, I was reading about it. According to BirdLife, it's actually the single richest forest for birds in Africa. Yeah. 563 yeah, it's, species it's and not, I think, 800,000 hectares. Um, yeah. It's not large. And it has the largest block of montane forest. Uh, it is exceptional in Africa in having unbroken progression from lowland to montane evergreen forest. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Elevation is always so important in the tropics. It's, it's, it's one of those ironic things in that DR Congo has been unstable for, for a long time. Uh, unfortunately, but ironically, that has kept a lot of like natural resource extraction industries out of that part of the world. So you have this large unbroken area and if stability comes back, then you've got an incredible resource for the people of DR Congo and um, the region. It's it's gorgeous. I've had the good fortune to bird in Uganda and um, those montane forests are something else. That's for sure. When you talked about the type specimen being from a mummified bird, the first thought that came to my head was, were its wings broken and was it stuffed into the crack in the rock? <laughs> was there a falcon well, around, an angry falcon? No, that's not. <laughs> that seems like a one-off. But there's actually another endemic bird from that same area called the Atomboy Nightjar that is known from oh. only one specimen that was also found dead. Uh, so, hey, maybe the Eleonora's falcon is just, you know... <laughs> Getting around. Getting around. I think they do. I think they do winter in um, 
sub-Saharan Africa. Hmm. So, you know, maybe. <laughs> Future studies may investigate. There you go. No, the there other thing that you said, Gabriel, that, that just struck me, um, talk, you mentioned how, you know, that the only previously known specimen was found outside of the area where we would expect to see it. And that phrase, where we expect to see it, mm. is so yeah. powerful yeah. and potentially problematic, right? Yeah, absolutely. Especially for something that you know, like virtually nothing about. Exactly. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked on um, yellow-billed cuckoos earlier in my career in Southeast Arizona, and we knew yellow-billed cuckoos nested in cottonwoods and willows along riparian areas and that's where we did our surveys and then somebody found a nest in a mesquite tree in the uplands and we're like mm. oh huh that's interesting and then somebody started <laughs> looking in like riparian areas more in the mountains instead of the lowlands and found cuckoos there also and so it's just important to not have blinders on or remain open open-minded yeah. especially with Keep things that open. we just don't know much yeah. about i instantly thought of um the way you were describing the the yellow on the head is like a tour de France bird. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But also it's yeah. more Moa. It is that kind of yellow. Yeah, it's it that is. kind of bright yellow. <laughs> you know, the, like really the, um, orange I think yellow, it's the birds yeah. of the world to account for them. Describes the flocks as moving, quote, at speed. I don't really know what that means, but hey, like a, maybe like a bicycle peloton. No, I see where we're going. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've watched the Tour de France. They go at speed. <laughs> yeah, I could see, I could totally see that bird actually wearing one of the the bike helmets. <laughs> it is wearing a bike helmet. It is, it's cool, yeah. yeah, I think that's really fascinating. And the again, we don't know what we don't know, and yeah. like having that understanding that there's still so much more to study and experience, and even. Um, outside of the U.S., the Americas, like, it's just, I'm excited because I am looking forward to traveling more, like, internationally and thinking about my national park work specifically. Um, I focus more on the mm -hmm. United States uh, national park system, but thinking about these other places in relation to nature and the environment and conservation and preservation of, um, of land is just really, I'm even more excited to be able to have those experiences in the future. Let's jump ahead to the question of the month. It is Valentine's month. It is Valentine's Day. I hope you all had a fine Valentine's Day. I don't know how to... It's also Black History Month. Yeah, it is also Black History Month. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. So if you want to assign this question to uh, to either one, you're welcome to do so. Um, so you can name either your uh, favorite bird that is predominantly black in its coloration or your favorite dis mating display for the bird or both. Can do either one to celebrate this current month let's talk about our favorite blackbirds and or bird mating displays this is basically just an opportunity to geek out about how cool birds are i can totally geek out i i knew you had it in you Jenny. <laughs> i had a hard time with this one too so i was looking at johnny rooks and then johnny i was like where yeah. does that name come from and then i got took me to johnny penguins gentoo penguins which took me to the rocks oh, and they give from? each other rocks yeah. and that's just adorable yeah but <laughs> Where I landed was, and Nate, I think this would be an amazing future podcast guest for you. 
Noted. I down. have partners that um, in Mexico, um, they work for, it's, the organization is called Grupo de Ecología y Conservación de Islas, Island Conservation and Ecology Group. They do island restoration work um, throughout Mexico, especially to um, support seabird populations, but other things as well. Mm -hmm. Lots of invasive species eradication, things like that. They've been partnering with the Fish and Wildlife Service and a group called Pacific Rim Conservation and others to translocate black-footed albatross from Midway Atoll to Guadalupe Island. So they've brought, for the last four years, I think two or three times, they've brought, the first time they brought actual chicks as well as eggs, and then they've brought eggs. Just two months ago, they brought the latest batch of eggs, and they're hatching them on Guadalupe Island. The birds hatch and then take off. And like most albatrosses, they spend the first three to five years of their life at sea. And the hope is mm -hmm. that then they would come back to Guadalupe Island and establish, you know, find a mate and start breeding there. There's a Laysan albatross population there, but not Blackfooted. Oh, cool. They're four years into the, pro the project and the first bird just returned. Oh, wow. Um, and it was a chick. It was a chick that was brought from Midway and so they weren't sure. They're like, oh, maybe it imprinted on Midway and it's going to return there. But it yeah. came back to to Guadalupe and now it's like wow. there Looking trying to around. dance with Laysan albatrosses, apparently. <laughs> I am really curious about the mechanism that causes a bird to kind of imprint on a location like that. I have no idea how that even happens. So I'll, I'll hold that for a potential podcast conversation yeah. with, your, with your people. I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm they also say, do a cool display. <laughs> the black-footed albatross mating dance display. Yeah. Both albatrosses blackbirds it, right. and... Yeah, um, there you go. Covers both. Nice super work. cool, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I have... I, I hate these questions where you have to make a decision. Yeah, you I'm got not, it. You're on the clock. <laughs> I'm not good with the decisions. I feel like there's so many fascinating... I instantly oh, think of the magnificent rifle bird and the... Um, paradise. Good choice for yes, a crazy and then there's display, the no what's doubt. the the crazy footwork bird, the manic mannequin. What's the oh my goodness, oh, yeah. I, the mannequins with the quick yep. I don't think yeah. I can move that fast. Even dancing, it's intense. It's intense, but also the sandhill cranes really are up there for me. Even though it's not a, a black bird, but definitely up there for me. Very elegant, great display. Yeah, no doubt the dancing of the cranes. People underestimate that. I think your uh, choices are so far afield, man. I I'm picking a bird that's like, well, literally right now at about four o'clock every day, I get it in the backyard. Cedar waxwings. Um, I don't know if you've oh, ever okay. seen their, their mating yeah. display courtship display, I guess. It is the cutest thing. They, you get a pair that come down onto a branch. The male usually has like a berry or sometimes a little stick or something in his mouth. And they'll be sitting like oh, six or eight inches apart, something like that. And then the male hops toward her, passes the berry, hops mm -hmm. away. She hops to him, passes the berry back, hops away. And they just go back and forth like this. It's the cutest thing. Slow-mo mannequin. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there's some there's some good videos on YouTube. The fact that they have see. all the time it's in the world to do this. Great. Like I yeah. just <laughs> they're like, yeah, we're just hanging out today. This is yeah. We it's two hours book for berry passing. Yeah, the berry <laughs> passing makes it even more cute, especially with it being February. Um <laughs> and then thinking about um I instantly think about them gorging on berries and just yeah, being drunk. Cedar <laughs> wax wings. So. Yeah, if you're banding, Cedar wax wings. They're like us. If you if you're banding and you catch wax wings, you always know 
you know, you've got the wax wings because the, the bottom of your bag is just purple. Covered in purple. Yeah, mockingbirds <laughs> are like that. I used to uh, work at a banding station uh, in Raleigh where um, we, it was kind of an educational banding station too. So we, we did like this color banding project with northern mockingbirds and there were several northern mockingbird colonies and like several of them, like at least three or four of them were centered on this massive pokeberry bush like they all kind of had kind of worked different parts of the pokeberry bush no it's like a like a bunch of bushes like it was a grove of pokeberries and anyway they were just making like a mess of everything your your hands would be stained purple for days afterwards <laughs> they were, they're nuts is there a way to get pokeberry um, I wear an old like- shirt i think is the <laughs> um, don't wear something that you you care about at all <laughs> wear a purple shirt wear a purple shirt that would also work so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and cover uh, both both questions at once too. I was gonna go with prairie chickens, which I think is one of the underrated great yeah. mating displays on the planet uh, that we sort of over over underestimate because we live in North America and we're somewhat familiar with prairie chickens. But it's it's so bizarre and so wild. So I guess I'm sort of smuggling that one in while I talk about this other one. I'm gonna talk about a bird that I see regularly here in North North Carolina, not where I live, but in the state that does a really cool. Uh, display that I think a lot of people miss because they're just everywhere uh, along the coast. And that is boat-tailed grackle, which uh, one makes the most unbelievable noises when they're like spitting, bubbling, gurgling sounds that they make when they're display, when the male is displaying. And also they do like all these cool little dances when they're walking around on like a parking lot. Um, Cause you see them a lot of times when you go to the beach mm-hmm. and you park in a spot in the public parking lot and there's, Boat-tail grackles all over the place because uh, there's trash cans and they like to dig through the trash cans. There's a landfill connection uh, as well. Yeah. But they show off like their massive big tail and they kind of throw it around and they'll stick their, the males will stick their bills like straight up in the air and like come together with against other males to kind of show off and they'll do their crazy gurgling. Is it similar it's, to the grebe? Yeah, it's it's similar. It's like a terrestrial sort of grebe thing. But they stick their bills up in the air and they splash their tails around and they're mm-hmm. showing off to the females and to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and people just like kind of walk right by them because you're at the beach, you're dragging your cooler out there and your kids. Um, but these boto grackles are out here doing this really cool display. People just kind of walk right by them. So if you're in the southeast, if you're in Florida, whatever, this time of year, pay attention to those boat-tailed grackles because they do some really, really cool stuff. Yeah, they're really fascinating if yeah. you give them the time of the day. For sure. <laughs> Just they're take so a ubiquitous, so it's easy to kind of let the sounds gonna wash over you, but they're if you close in on them, they're 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 neat. If you happen to find yourself in Maryland, mm-hmm. you could come and you could look for their breeding display, record it for the Atlas. Oh, there you go. And contribute to community science. Yeah. You can do awesome. that in, anywhere, but I think it's especially appreciated <laughs> in Maryland. I was also thinking about um all the grassland birds that we see during Camp Colorado, mm. which is going to happen in late June this year. We've oh, been, it's, we're just, everyone's plugging their stuff. Earlier. That's fine. That's no, fine. I'm not even plugging it because we're <laughs> sold out with like a wait list of like three times as many campers as we can ever accommodate this year. But the way that grassland birds, you know, there's no trees for them to sing yeah. up on and display. And so they fly up and then like sing as they float down to the ground. It's such a cool thing. Like horn larks yeah. and the long spurs. Yeah. 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 Any of these displays that can be turned into a meme. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've got, I think there are more out there than people realize too. Right. Like, you know, there's some, there's some cool displays out there. Even the things like chickadees and titmice are doing mm-hmm. kind of neat stuff if you stop and pay attention to it uh synchronized drumming of the woodpeckers always a good thing that's going on uh mm-hmm. you know I, i'm trying to think of the things that are 
kind of in my neighborhood. I've seen the house finches pass food to each other. It's not as cute as the cedar wax things, but a lot of birds will do stuff like that too. Yeah. Here's an idea for a podcast. We just take an hour and spend time going back and forth saying, here's this one thing that birds here's do that I think is so cool. cool. <laughs> Daisy chain all the way to the end. <laughs> Are there any really um, cool owl displays that you've either of you witnessed? Oh, shorted owls do really cool synchronized yes. flight displays Ooh. that are neat. I don't know if I've ever witnessed it, but I've know I know that they do that. That's a grassland bird too. So yeah, maybe maybe got a grassland bird thing going on. <laughs> grassland birds, most threatened ecosystem out there. Sixty three percent fewer grasslands than there were in nineteen seventy. Fifty three percent fewer grassland birds. End on a down note. Get out there and advocate for grassland. Advocate for grassland. There you go. Positive change. (laughs) Thank you so much, Gabriel, Nicole, Jenny, for joining me to talk about birds. This was a lot of fun. Uh, Always a pleasure to to chat about birds with you. I will have links to the stuff that these people are doing in the show notes. uh, And also, obviously, links to all the articles that we talked about. Please check those out if you want to read further. Until next time, I hope you enjoy your extra day of February. And uh, we'll see you. We'll see you around. Thank you, Nate. Thank you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to join the ABA. You get a lot of really great benefits, including our fantastic magazines, a lot of online stuff. We have a magazine archive where you can go back and see all of the birding magazines throughout the 50 plus year history of the ABA. And of course, our new identification portal, which pulls out all the great identification articles that we've published over the years and puts them in one handy searchable database. You can also get discounts to partners like OM Systems, Beauty of Books, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and a whole lot more. Get information on that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to John Carlton of Upperco, Maryland, Thomas Weeks of Rivesville, West Virginia, and Ed Young and family of Oakland, California, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, Welcome to the ABA. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Wayne Klockner, who was terrified by the story of a seabird who kills its family and brings a plague on its colony in the classic movie uh, Albatross Ferratu. Technical production is by John Lowry, whose favorite bird-inspired horror movie involves an FBI agent hunting a serial killer who tosses the bones of its victims from great heights and shatters them on the rocky ground. That, of course, the silence of the Lammergeiers. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Greg Neese, who are huge fans of the Alfred Hitchcock-inspired thriller, where an on-the-run embezzler encounters a shy motel proprietor who, unbeknownst to her at the time, murdered his mother and suspended her body on a barbed wire fence. That, of course, Shrico. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. On Blue Sky, we're at ABA Birds. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. Thank you so much for listening. Bird Like Tom, we'll see you next week.